0: You're listening You're listening You're listening You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more If you want to learn about the music industry And you don't know where to go Tune into to WP88.7 Brave New
1: Radio We got managers, producers, record
0: labels concert promoters galore You never know
2: Wednesday at 8 p.m. Puts on a makeup
1: and dresses to the night, hopes to find a thing called love. The slightest attention will set off her imagination, but it's not when you start. but where you start can be the difference of a broken heart. Hopes to find a man that light the way the like pass the make of she. All right, three,
3: two, one.
0: Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. I'm your professor, David Garfield, with your Dr. Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. That's right. He is the Emeritus and he is gone. He has got Emeritus disease and so he no longer works with us, but he will never stop working with this. So it's good to have right. you on your on your days off, your many days off. We have a guest who will be with us shortly, Louise Goffin. The daughter of Carol King and Jerry. Jerry. Goffin, correct. And so she is Music Business Royalty. So we're going to talk about some interesting stuff. We want you to know you should uh, go to MusicBiz101WP.com, sign up for that newsletter. Follow us on the Instagram the, the book at MusicBiz101WP, the podcast you're probably listening to first, iTunes, SoundCloud. And we want to give thanks. Should we give thanks? We should. We will give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Wink, and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthews, three doors down, St. Vincent, and KISS, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. That's it. (laughs) CPA.com when you are ready. And we're going to just go with that with our uh, one uh, partner on this program. Uh, uh, Aaron Van Dyne has been great to us for a while. And uh, our second partner retired, so we will discuss if we're going to talk about her anymore or not. Um, <clears throat> but finally, uh, managing your band, seventh edition. Once furloughs are done, that might um, have a contract done and then might be get going, right? Yes, we hope. It's going to be very good. And of course, the University of William Patterson is one of the top ranked music business programs in all the world, according to our friend Bill Board. Bill that's right. Bill Board. And then here comes Louise. Louise Goffin. Yes. Louise, Dr. Esteban, give Louise the, the third degree. Oh well, I was just gonna start to,
3: so you you sort of got your first real gig at 17.
4: Uh yeah, actually. My first real gig. Well I did some I did some assemblies, talent shows in you know right. high school.
3: Right. So now did you what age did you realize you wanted to put a guitar in your hand? And Was it just the models in your, your house or or what?
4: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I saw something that I'd written for the school news, <laughs> newspaper in second grade and pretty much described my life. I said, I want to write songs and I want to travel and I want to play the songs in different places. And right. Yeah. So I, I said that when I was eight.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and and actually at that point I hadn't really been on the road with my mother because she didn't tour at, at all really until I think 1971 you know mm-hmm. to tapestry so at that stage um, you know she had just barely started her singer songwriter career so right. I think she went somewhere
3: right sure so did you have a band in, in high school or was it so, so I-
4: it was always just me as sitting at the piano, you know. I'm sure uh-huh. that that was inspired by.
3: Yeah, obviously, from what you yeah. saw. Okay, yeah. so how was it the first gig? Do you recall it all? Were you was that the one at the Troubadour or what?
4: Yeah, I um, I recall being very shy. Um, I recall that I turned Jackson Brown down when he first offered it to me because I didn't feel I was ready, and then I called him right back and said. I'm gonna do it because I realized I passed up a great opportunity and right um, And I remember I remember how the troubadour used to look. I remember how there you know there still is an upper level right but then it was a longer upper level and I remember yeah. that jutting out over you know the bottom area where right. the was and, and the upper area was where Jackson was sitting and the celebrities in the room were sitting. Yeah. right and yeah. i had i'm pretty sure i had a flower in my hair <laughs>
3: <laughs> well you were ready then certainly at 17.
4: yeah well i was about to make a record with um electro asylum but i was still in high school and and life right. was, i was thrust into way more um independence and responsibility than most 17 year olds because
5: mm-hmm.
4: mm-hmm. <laughs> my mom left l.a and I stayed, so I was living alone and putting myself through high school, you know?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: All right, so did, they, when you got your first Bites, was it as a songwriter or as a uh, singer?
4: Um, my first Bites were as an artist at Electro Asylum, you know? Right. They wanted to sign me, and uh, they wouldn't let me make my first record till I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And they wanted Peter, you know, I guess we all wanted Peter Asher to uh, produce the first record, but Peter was super busy at the time. Right. And he said, you know, who would make an, a, a great producer is Danny Korchmar. And I think I was the first album that Danny Yeah.
3: Korchmar right.
4: Did. Yeah. Wow.
3: And was it all original?
4: It was all original. I mean, I did one song that Danny had written on his own called Hurt By Love. Right. The rest of it was all um, original.
3: Wow, Okay, that's—I mean—that's a big jump, it really is, for them to accept you to take all original material.
4: Yeah, but back in those days, that was—that was more the thing with singer-songwriters, you know. They yeah. the whole idea of your singer who sings your own songs that you write, you know. Right.
3: I was—I was on a bit I was with a band on Epic in the early '70s, so. Uh-huh. It was, of course, all original material. Or if you did a cover, it shouldn't sound anything like the original. Uh, That's the way those days were, you know, with all of that.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky in the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. Um, Maybe lucky, but maybe just who I am as a person, and artist has attracted those people. But the record company situations I've been with, there's always been one person, you know, who runs the show who really would get me. Um, and that's a rare situation. Right. I had it with Lenny Warrenker at DreamWorks. Um, I had it with the guy who signed me at Electra Asylum, but he he was not he was good to me as an artist, but he, he wasn't a good guy. I mean, I've just heard too many mm-hmm. stories about payola and and awful right. shitty things. So I just assume not even, you know, just go there. But um yeah i uh, getting to work with lenny warrenker was amazing and then i worked with max hole um who signed me in england and he you know these were all people who loved artists and loved songs and and they were into long shelf life music and i was very lucky to be in those situations now having said that what i learned about you know, launching right into the music business, um, what I learned about record companies is you can have a champion who will sign you, but then, the, but then, you know, they need to deal with a marketing uh, arm of the company, and they may not have any power with that. So, you know, right. you make sign, get to make the record you want to make, and then eventually it gets finished and it goes to the marketing department and the radio department and they all sit around uh, you know and have meetings what are we gonna do with this right and, and they may go ah you know it's one of Lenny's signings they may say <laughs> We're just, uh-huh. I think that happened, you know um, and they don't know what to do with it you know and so sometimes you can die on the vine having gotten the record deal made the record you want to make but nobody knows what to do with it and in my case Later, at DreamWorks, when I made Sometimes a Circle, I had to wait a really long time after making the record to be on the release schedule, but they were very careful to put me on the release schedule when they had time for me. Mm. So I got to do a radio tour as it was being released, and we had like something like 19 ads the first week on radio, which was... Great. People were like who's louise goffin who knocked us off the you know right. people, like pissed like i came out of came out of left field but it was hard to sustain because the record was an artistic lenny warrenker signing and it
5: yeah it,
3: right yeah right. so then you went when did you go
4: uh overseas um i went to well that was a that was before dreamworks i went really Yeah, I went to London for 10 days at the end of, like, December of 1984, and I was going there to meet with Dave Robinson, who had Stiff Records. He was also running Island Records for Chris Blackwell that year, Um, and Dave had come to see me play with a band that I was, you know, playing with that I loved in New York City, And um, but the band was not happening at the time. There was a lot of, I don't know, there was a lot of dysfunction in terms of getting songs finished. And um, he came, Dave Robinson, flew into New York from London because I said, no, you have to see this band. And he flew in and he happened to see us on a particularly terrible day where, you know, someone got hit by a bus, went to the hospital, they came to (laughs) rehearsal two hours late in a cast and could play drums with only one hand. It was just... And then he offered me, he said, look, come to London. Just come to London for 10 days. I want you to meet this producer and just have a meeting and maybe we can make a record. And I went to London and then I stayed 10 years.
3: (laughs) And you felt uh, a creative energy in London?
4: I felt a lot. Well, first of all, I'd always had this thing with England growing up, you know, between the Beatles and... The Clash and The Pretenders and, and reading Winnie the Pooh and seeing pictures of Hampstead Heath. I always had this um, thing, but also when I was about, when I was 11 years old, my mother did a, a, a summer tour with James Taylor and Joe Mama, and she took me and my sister on tour. So, you know, we had been traveling around and gone to the BBC and to, you know, up up the coast to Scotland and I think that's where I really got the taste for oh I want to travel and, and um. <laughs> so when I had the opportunity to go to London and you know he put me up in this service department and that particular it's a very rare thing in London but that particular December it snowed and I was like on the ground floor I had a little kitchenette and I was in uh, you know west Kensington, and I'd open the back door and there was like a snowy field behind me, you know, I was just like,
0: I'm not going
4: home. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm staying to see what there is to see. And then just, you know, wrote songs and made demos with different people. And, uh, I don't know, eventually I met uh, David Nassie, who, you know, now is a big record company guy, but he, he, he was managing me and, uh, Things weren't really going well at Stiff Records, and he got me off of Stiff Records, and 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 I got a deal with um, Warner Brothers UK. Mm. And in fact, there was a little mini bidding war over me. I remember there was it was between Sony and uh, and Warner Brothers.
0: Yeah. Wow. And what year is this now? What's that? What What year approximately are we in when we uh,
4: 1985.
0: Okay, so this is uh post the post-Kid Blue, the post um. Electric yeah,
4: and, and, and pre-DreamWorks.
0: Um, pre, okay, so the time in between.
4: Okay. Yeah. All right.
0: All
3: right. Were you going to say something, Dave? I didn't want to step on
0: well, you. N- No, I... No, you, you keep going, then I'll... Ah, then. Okay.
3: So were the deals... Uh, did you... Were, the, were those early deals, did you feel like you were being taken advantage of? Were they... Like,
4: not at all. No, no, not, no. I, I mean, honestly, I don't remember what I got signed for um, for Kid Blue and all of that, but right. uh, I remember I got a very, very generous publishing deal in um, with Warner Chapel when I got my record deal with Warner Brothers. And this, this was a thing that was really troublesome for me because I I was always able to get a publishing deal when I got a record deal. Um, Mm -hmm. And not always at the same time. Like, I I really say John Tita, who now, you know, runs ASCAP. um, Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Paul Williams is the head. But John Tita was at Warner Chapel. And blessed heart, he gave me a publishing deal with Warner Chapel a year before... I got signed to DreamWorks you know because that's that's really where the publishers where you need them as an artist to survive you know um
5: mm-hmm.
4: they oh we want to sign you now that somebody else is putting a bunch of money behind you it just makes what, what was hard for me as an artist is is um supporting myself with any kind of stability because it would it would come like a geyser where you just get like all this affirmation publishing deal, record deal, things would be happening, and it would it would take usually, you know, three to five years to lead up to that point. Right. And that would happen, and then it would all be over within like a year to a year and a half.
3: Right.
4: And then you'd just be right back on your ass again, you know, with like nothing, and and even no stock, because your stock would be low because you just did that and it wasn't a hit. So, you know,
2: mm. and then you're
4: just slogging it out, like going to meetings and, um, I mean, I this is a big point I make when I do masterclasses on artist empowerment. You know, so many times I fell into the illusion of, here's my precious work, my tape here, take it and, run with it and they go oh man this is great we love this so leave it with me and then i go home and collapse on my bed and go finally somebody else is gonna run with this who who has some access and i can take a little break and i made it to that rung and now i can like now i can just like rest a little bit and nothing nothing could happen and, you know, like the illusion of like, you can, you can ever rest. Like, no, you can never rest. And, and the other illusion is, is that if you, you know, we think we want to go with a big company because we think, oh, they're a big name and they have cloud and they've gotten things on this TV show. And, but it's the kiss of death because really the whole business model is to have catalog And to have as many people, you know, in the stable as possible to up the ante where if you have all these signings, you know, then let's say it's a publishing company, you know, if we, if we sign 50 people this year, you know, one of them is going to have that big hit. And, and then you're trapped somewhere.
5: Yeah.
4: if you're somewhere and you've got your money and they gave you the advance and you have the contract and you have to give them so many songs a year, and then I'm looking at you, Dave, and I'm thinking, you, I, I'm depressing you. I don't know. Do you have a problem i
0: I love this. I'm like eating every word up that you're saying. So
4: it's great. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah then you're you're kind of stuck as uh, in this kind of slavery where you're like having to perform having to perform and deliver and deliver, but you don't have anybody really understanding what you wh- who you're about or or um, mm-hmm. uh you're not having those meetings of strategy of you know what is what is what are your goals what do you want for yourself, who do you see yourself writing with you know yeah. what are your strong points you know where do you all of that so you just get put into situations where you know you have to be kind of like a dancing monkey who can do every single job like oh they put me in this and there's no lyricist i guess i'm writing lyrics in this session or um there's no one writing melody here you know or mm-hmm. oh there's a track guy and he's just doing track i guess he's not doing anything having to do with the song so i'm going to have to come up with the structure you know you just right. have to go in and find out what's needed and I don't know, the The more, I found the more I would try to please, the more watered down the work would get, and mm-hmm. the more watered down the work would get, the less chance that the work would have of standing out and speaking to somebody to want to cover it, and I don't know, I got to a point where I just felt like I am just wasting my talent, and I'm wasting my days, and you know, my ego needs the affirmation that I just got a, a publishing deal with blah, 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 you know, or mm-hmm. I got a song and, you know, it, it, this need to associate with some corporate entity in order to feel like you're somebody. And, and our whole culture is that way too. It's like, oh, you were on, you know, one of those con, you were on The Voice or you were in on one of those contests. All right. You know, with those contests, you know, what is that really? It's like, you know, you're being used for TV engagement and maybe you win, and maybe you lose and you sign away all your rights if you win. And I just find the whole thing to be... Uh, I just don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. And um, I don't like it for artists. I just, i I think it's... The whole system is um, an enemy to the artist, really, because Mm -hmm. it's like our country and our culture, like we really put corporations above people and the music industry used to be a place that would do that. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, you you just got, I say you gotta be tough. I never perceived myself as a tough person, but I, I have had a lot of drive, and I think that having drive has made it so that when I would fall down or get dropped or a record wouldn't come out or you know a whole bunch of mm-hmm. horrors that can occur, mm-hmm. um, where some people would just like say that's it, like I, I put my everything into that and it was destroyed and I never it never saw the light of day. I haven't got it in me to do that again. Like I can't do that to myself again. Um, That's totally 100% understandable because it it is really, really brutal. For me, I just, I couldn't stop. Like I just was, I really didn't know what else to do with myself. And, And I tried many times. I tried many other jobs like, oh, I know what I'll be. I'll do this or I'll do that. And I was never the—it's never really the best version of myself. The best version of myself was me doing the job I wanted to do without waiting for permission to do it, was really what I had to do.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you once said, uh, some interview I was looking at, that you think uh, like a producer. Totally. And what do you mean by that for our audience?
4: Uh... I'm thinking of presentation. You know, not so much in the writing of the song because a, a good song is just satisfying in, in itself. But um, I didn't used to feel that way. Like some artists, my ex-husband Greg Wells is a you know very successful producer, mm-hmm. and he and I remember you know one of his big successes early was um, Mika, and I remember him saying you know Mika has such a great sense of who he is to his audience.
5: Mm.
4: And that that's very, very valuable. So many artists are so self-conscious and in their insecurity. It's really helpful to step back and look at how your audience is going to see you
5: mm-hmm. and
4: what you want to convey to them. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the producer hat for me is... Is, is more about that. I mean, I think like a producer in terms of visuals too, like I've in the last few years, I've started editing a lot of my own videos and you know, how have had to use, you know, incorporate stock footage and, and shoot things on my phone. And you just, I have to get really creative to come up with things that are content worthy when I don't have a budget to go out and do like a photo shoot, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I'm always, you know, whenever I watch netflix i'm always looking at those opening montages of every tv show like how are they doing that how do i like i i love the idea of the three minute intro you know and mm-hmm. a visual representation of what that show is or what that song is mm-hmm. I, I love i love the whole thing i love the audio and visual of it all mm-hmm. um but thinking like a producer is really yeah thinking about parts which i did a lot in london when i lived in london um and there was a lot of downtime. i mean really when i lived in london i only put out one record i put out a record and i made a record that never came out you know that was in a 10-year period
5: yeah
4: and i did a lot of writing and a lot of playing and a lot of experimenting um you know, a lot of demo recording, but I had a half-inch eight-track in my living room,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and I think I, I think I had Cubase and then Digital Performer, or maybe just Cubase in London. Yeah, I think I'd moved to Digital Performer for a minute when I came to LA again, but um, mostly I was playing organically, but I programmed some drums, and I just, I would just listen to records and go, oh, what is it about this record I like. Oh, I love the bass. What's the bass doing, you know? And then I'd try to write a song with bass that did the thing that I thought, you know, I want a bass that moves like that. Or I want a song that revolves around the bass line. Or just every time I'd hear something and inspire me, I would just go and try it. Mm-hmm. So it, that turned me into a multi-instrumentalist where when I was holding the bass, I'd think like the bass player. When I was holding the guitar, I'd think like the guitar player and, um, you know i don't have to be highly proficient in in all of the instruments to play parts you know for records sometimes parts are very simple mm-hmm. uh, but it really helps them when you go into the studio and you're making a record to have had that experience because you can communicate with the bands better
5: of
3: course
0: sure sure so oh go ahead Dave. i don't no, to- i was gonna ask you're in London, and you made an album, and the album never came out. So can you talk about why it never came out? Was that because of you didn't want it to come out, or was you had no control over it? And explain the emotion and the the lack of... Right. Come from-
4: happily, happily. So I went to London, you know, signed with Stiff Records, um, did some songs, a lot of demos, and then met David Massey, and he said, you need to be on a major label. And um so I signed to Warner Brothers, Max Hall signed me, and um and Rob Dickens was there and Moira and you know, like just ba- a badass team, you know, great AR, great press department. Like they were on their game totally.
5: Mm.
4: However, I didn't really know myself well. And so you can have the best people at the top of their game. And if you don't really know who you are, they'll just, you know, they'll take a stab at who you are. <laughs> they'll go, oh, I like you in that jacket. How about we wear that? And you go for the, you know, the kind of casual girl next door look. And then you, you choose that photographer. This has happened to me so many times. I can't even tell you with with. <laughs> where you just, you make a choice. Okay, I'm gonna use that photographer and you get the pictures and it's like, eh, you right. know? But you have to choose one. You don't get another photo session, you know?
5: Right.
4: One of those pictures is your album cover. So, you know, I had experiences like that. But so I made this record, um, This Is The Place, which had two different covers. One was a, uh, I think it was the English, one. Yeah, I didn't really like the covers really dark and I just I didn't even feel like it looked it like me I didn't really even like the font on it. And then there was um, a n- different photo for the American one which was more glamorous. And was cool. It was ha- kind of cool it's still out now. It has a bunch of buildings, but I you know my Misperception of myself at the time was really like super sexy and you know, I'm just wearing this like sequence top, and I, I, I look—I look like a Latino, you know, um, sex kitten for a catalog, you know, modeling. You know, like funny
0: if you look back at some of those old videos because they're there, I was looking at them on on YouTube, like uh, around like eighty-seven, eighty-eight ish. Is that kind of where we are now, or are we still in eighty-five? Well,
4: mean, no, like, in no, we're 88, we're eighty-eight. I'm kind of talking about eighty-eight
0: okay yeah so like um in the mood there's a video of you performing it live and you're in like a crop top playing guitar on that Um, oh yeah for um there's another track bridge of maybe that was bridge of sides where you're in this leather jacket yeah and it's a really cool looking leather jacket but i saw you in the leather jacket i was thinking about what you just talked about a second ago um which was were they telling you to wear that leather jacket or was that you saying?
4: No, no, I mean they didn't tell me what to wear. I just did not have a sense of myself. I just really mm-hmm. did. I was um, I was insecure as a woman and I was, you know, would look at these fashion magazines and I think, "Oh, well now I have a record deal and I have this opportunity to have a video shoot and a photo shoot, so I'm going to dress like that," you know? And sure. um it's the thing that Greg was saying about Mika, you know, like he has a real sense of what is, who he is to his audience, you know, which I didn't have. So, and and I see it a lot, the danger with, um, I just had this conversation in an interview I gave this morning with a woman, the young woman, you know, talking about how as women, we're in this culture that just like, if you feel insecure, you know the answer is like, oh, I don't know. That you know, a well-meaning suggestion. Well, have you considered putting some makeup on? You know, it's like that's the wrong answer. <laughs> you know,
5: um,
4: we we think that we can um, feel better about ourselves by upping the ante of like, oh, you know, be better, be more, be more flawless, put more makeup on. You know, then um, when the the answer is, uh, you know love yourself, you know, and, and, and be, and project that project who you are, you know, and, and people respond to authenticity. So I was kind of my own worst enemy, really a lot. And also, um, what I now see is that, you know, success eluded me so much of the early part of my career that it eluded me because I did all those things. Like if I, I remember there was this one telling moment and, I, and it's part of my, on my to-do list. I have so many cassettes in my house and in, in boxes and some of them are Porter Studio, you know, multi track cassettes. And I remember playing it for someone, I think it was 1988. And I had, you know, I had a record out and, um, I played some of these things that I had done in the early 80s, like in my front room where I played all the instruments and compressed everything together and made these mixes. And they were like, this is amazing. Like, you know, why didn't you put these out? And in some cases I would have played those for people. I would, they would have heard demos and then they would go, oh, well, you know, let's get this producer or that producer. But the truth of the matter was, is that my true self was like, way more badass than the person yeah. that I released to the world um, and the pictures compromised who I was the way the records were made the slickness of the records mm-hmm. I mean the videos everything about it you know um, it's kind of like as years went on it seemed like, oh, I got a lot better, but really, I'm not that different than I was. It's just, I'm just not, uh, I'm just putting out who I am when when I didn't before. And I also had this big team that was uh, perfectly help, perfectly happy to enable me in my, you know, Mm self-rejection.
0: yeah. Right. Well, it, it's also interesting because at that point, it's not like um, Kid Blue, if you watch that, you actually had a, a real produced video for that, and that's 1979-ish, and you're 19, and you can see, and almost with you, a rookie, you know, you're a rookie on, in, in the video. You can see it in your eyes, almost like a, not a deer in the headlights, but you can see this, I'm unsure, you know, um, and it's interesting because now we're in 1988, and you're 28 years old, and... Um, you're still trying to figure out who you are. And I think the lesson there is for a lot of people, they assume if I don't have it by 21 or 22, or I'll have it then, you know, they don't understand you're gonna keep growing and it's different for everybody. So at what point would you say, and you felt that you knew who you were, that you knew who you were as a person, as an artist, or you felt more comfortable in your- Well,
4: I would say sometimes a circle.
0: Mm -hmm, Around 02 then. When it came out, at
4: least. Oh yeah, it came out in 02. um, You know, I started writing some of those songs in 98, uh, 97, 98. The record was actually made in in 98 and 99. It didn't come out for three years. Um, But, yeah, that was the first time that I was... It was a really good combination with me and Greg because um, right before that record, I still was trying to like I was following trends and I was still trying to sound like some of those uh, you know Pacific Northwest bands you know like playing a Les Paul and being really rock and some of the harmony and the, the writing of the songs wasn't really up to the level that I could be at and then. With Greg, it was this great fusion of minds, you know, where I could take what I did and he could bring it to this level that was modernized, you know? Um, And it's a a great record, actually. I listened to it fairly recently and I wrote him. I was like, have you listened to this lately? Mm. And he sent me a, a post he had done. Um, earlier in the year saying exactly the same thing like this is a great record i'm really proud of but it, it really really holds up and it does not date it sounds like it was written yesterday it's a great album and that was the first album that i made i felt that way about i but i did write songs way earlier that i felt great about and in fact some of them i'm recording now like i, I re-recorded Bridge um, not that I didn't like the version. I thought that was a great version for its time, but I just felt the song was so good and could, it could be done a way that didn't lock it into the eighties, you know? So I did a revision of that. I remember playing it for Mitchell Froome and he was like, you nailed it. You, you better, you you bettered it, you know, which was really a high, high praise coming from him. Um, and There's a song called The Heart is the Last Frontier on this new record, which I recorded on the album that did not come out, which was recorded on David Gilmour's boat, by the way. It was recorded, um, you know, Pink Floyd, David Gilmour. It was recorded in the studio on the Thames. Uh, And I I recorded it then, and everyone loved that song, but I think what was happening on that album was I just was overcooking things. Like, this is the problem of insecurity when you – Feel insecure, you'll overbake it. You know, it it will be good, but nobody told you. You know, in the absence of people saying, that's badass, you're sitting there going, what's wrong with it, what do I have to do with it? And then you do more to it, and then you do more to it, and then you like kill it, and you take out the thing that's interesting in it. So that happened, and then there was one later time where I think Greg tried to do another version of that song, and it was interesting, but I went into the Village Recording Studios about, I don't know, 2014 or something. And I thought, I'm, I'm gonna just make a demo myself of this song and came up with a different arrangement, took out a whole section, wrote a whole new section. And then when I went to make the record with Dave Way, it was in my Dropbox folder of new songs, even though the song was written in like 1991 And, you know, we did it using the demo as kind of the direction, although the band just knocked it completely out of the park and Dave. Um, So that, I mean, that song is great and holds up, but it was, you know, it was written 30 years ago.
0: Mm. It's it's funny that you bring up The Heart is the Last Frontier, Mm because I was going to bring up that song. Actually, it's a really good song on your record. I added it to two of my spotify playlists
4: yeah
0: yeah um so you wrote that with reed savage right
4: yeah i mean he didn't he didn't do a lot of writing on that song i would say you know but he was he he was there in the inception of it and i feel like it wouldn't have happened without us starting it together um but i worked really hard on the lyric I remember my, I, I really remember this so well. Matthew Seligman, who died earlier this year from COVID, who was in just a great friend, a great bass player. He played with David Bowie and Live Aid and played on Absolute Beginners. And I didn't even know all of his credits because he was, he was just the greatest guy, a great bass player, but he was also a lawyer, you know, like a right. human rights lawyer. And I mean, he was just smart as a whip and just kind. And I remember being in the studio, you know, during that period of time when we were working at at, at David's um, houseboat studio, we had Andy Jackson, Andrew Jackson, um, the engineer, who is like legendary. And I just was not happy with the vocal. And I remember Matthew coming over to my London flat and just going, oh, it'll be lovely. It'll be lovely. You know, just let's listen to it. And we sat down and we listened to all the takes and... I took notes on, well, I could use this take, you know, this part of the vocal from that, and he gave me all this support. He's like, don't lose heart. It's it's important. This is an amazing song, and this is important. Go into the studio and get this how you love it, and I just remember that so well, and, and I did, and you know, there were a lot of great people who played on that version, like Robbie McIntosh who played with Paul McCartney and the pretenders, you know, he came in and played on it. I think Chris Witten, you know, also amazing drummer, he played mm-hmm. on it, great musicians. But there was something kind of lacking I don't know, it, it, it was some it's something I can access on my own. And now I access it, now that I can access it on my own, I can take that and bring it to musicians and musicians just amplify and better it. It's, it's really a matter of really being, being able to own a song in a groove, in a pocket, in your own body before you go to record it. If you don't, it's just like my stories about going to record companies if you don't know who, who you are. They can't make it good. They, they will ruin it, you know? They won't try to ruin it. They think they're doing well, but you, you've gotta just, you just gotta have the vision within yourself. And and I used to envy bands that do that. I thought, oh, they're so grown up. I was just so eager at the gates. I never spent that time. But you, you know, the bands who would get together and they'd have these democratic meetings and they'd have an idea of who they were, what they wanted, what they didn't want. And the record companies and the managers would meet, and they and the record company would go to the band, and the band would say, "No, we don't want that producer. We want this." They'd have a point of view going in, and I didn't. I just, I mean, sometimes I did. I, I'd go, "Oh, don't you think it would be better?" And then I'd allow myself to get talked out of something, you know. Um, those days are gone.
0: <laughs> so, so, getting back to, to the song. Um, just, and you don't have to give me percentages, but you, you said something real interesting because I manage some artists and one artist I manage in particular um, has had situations like you had with Reed in which he deserves- Yeah, something. I know,
4: I know you, where you're going with this. Well, just first song of all, splits, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I wrote the song Bridge of Sias with Reed and that was totally- he had a track. It was his track. It was a beautiful track. And I wrote melody and lyrics over it. And I think we did a 60 40 split on the song.
2: Right.
4: Um, and, and that was always hard for me at the time. Like, I pretty much now just do 50 50. If someone's in the room and we're writing the song together, it's 50 50. But I was I I won't, you know, I won't say his name in case he doesn't want me to, but there's a producer I work with, very successful in the last five years. And he, you know, sometimes we'd write with an artist because the artist had a record deal and we were hoping to write for the artist. And the artist would hardly write any of the song, but it'd be a three-way split because that was the artist. And then the artist wouldn't cut the song. Mm-hmm. And he'd write me back. He'd go, hey, um, I'm going to do this song with so-and-so. Should we should we go back to so-and-so and, like, talk about the splits? And and I would go, you can do that? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know you could do that. Like, I just thought to go back after the fact and then try to change the splits. He was like, yeah, you do it all the time. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the split is with Reed on um, The Heart is the Last Frontier. I mean, it's not a lot, it, 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 may, it, may be, it may be 15 or 20% of the song, but mostly what he wrote is a middle eight that isn't even in the song anymore. You know, mm-hmm. but he was there at the inset in the um, inception of it, and you know, may have helped with some of the chord sequences, or you know, and and then I and I really I changed even the chorus key, you know, put a lot of substitutions in it. It it's, it also happened with two different movies. I wrote that with Dennis Makovsky. I hope I'm saying his name right. I want to say it right because it's audio and you can edit it, but um, (laughs) he's a very, very big writer. I'll just say Dennis um, and and Greg, my two co-writers on that. Uh, That song had pretty much totally different music. It was a writing day in Nashville and I came with all these lyrics. I was really heartbroken and distressed from personal life breakup. And we wrote this song and I later, um, I would say four years later, four or five years later, just sat and thought, I love these lyrics. I don't like the music. And I just kind of substituted and changed the whole piece of music. But that was a case where I wasn't going to go back and go, Hey, guys, I rewrote the song. And now you're going to get like, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do because that song happened and and was in existence because of everybody who was in the room. In the case of The Hardest Last Frontier, you know, there was kind of a track and I went off and wrote the lyrics separately later. You know, um, a lot of work was put into song to make the song realized after the fact. It wasn't like the two of us were writing lyrics and melody and made the song. So, okay, here's another one. Simple Life. I wrote Simple Life with um, an artist named Emmett Sky. He came over. He wanted to write. And I pretty much wrote the whole song with him in the room. We talked about a thing and... He's from Louisiana and it was kind of about his childhood imagined. But I just, the whole song kind of downloaded while he was in the room. I was like, how about this? And I was like verse after verse. And I sat at the piano and the whole song kind of like came out on the piano like a fully formed egg. And he threw in some ideas and you know, and it was like annoying to me that I was, that I then recorded the song and that it was a 50-50 split, because I felt like, wait a minute, I, I, he didn't write 50% of the song. And it wasn't in an anger, but it was just like, it was just, it didn't feel right, you know? So I called him up bravely and um, to his credit, you know, he said, oh, oh man, you wrote that song, you know, like whatever you feel, you know? and, and I. I wanted to keep his name on it. I think he's got 10% or something. Now, you know, having said this, none of these songs make a penny. You know? It's like we're talking about these splits, but it's almost a joke now, you know, because, I mean, I think uh, at one point I called Billy Harvey because he had a lot of co-writes on uh, songs from the mine. And I did, like, a quick math. I thought, okay, here's all the money that the album made. Half of that's the master, half of that's the writers. And Billy's written this percentage of the album, so I'm gonna give him that percentage of that income and wrote him a check. And it was like $71, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But um, I don't have the time and it's not worth the $12 to figure that out with every, you know, release. I mean, I don't have a record company team. I don't have an accounting department. I don't, and there's no money. And the amount of money, you know, if you were doing recoupable things, which you're not, you know, songwriters are not recoup. You know, nowadays when people, if you do something on someone's record and they upload it to Bandcamp and they set and they sell on Bandcamp and they make a total of seventy dollars on the that song that you sung on for free or or whatever. Or that you got paid as a work for hire or that you co-wrote you know what are the chances that everybody downloading on on bandcamp are going to call you up and go hey you made you made a dollar and two cents on bandcamp i mean it's become like the accounting of it all is a problem
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we know that yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have your own label. You, have, um, you mentioned the, the revenue is tough on this, especially on the recorded music side. Well, right now on the live side, nothing's happening. But uh, on, the, on the recorded side, um, you, we were connected because of Surefire. So you have a PR agency, for example. So what is the team that you do have today, including manager, publishing, unless you do your own publishing, all that kind of stuff?
4: I really do need a publishing administrator, just because I can't keep up with the, the, the places that money hides, you know? Um, I try to. It kind of stopped me in my tracks just because it reminded me of the overwhelm of staying on top of everything. Um, my team right now is, um, I have somebody who I've been working with for about four years, three or four years, Um, who helps me with social media, which at the time seemed like a luxury because it's like, yeah, I could do this, you know, but I realized it was just sucking up so much of my time. It was ridiculous. This can't be like, if I was going to afford myself any luxury in life, you know, it's going to be to have someone take care of this or oversee this because... I need these hours, you know? So, um, and I was very lucky to find her because she has, you really want to find someone who understands who you are and your voice and will speak with you and that you could have a system with. And we have a good system where weekly, you know, you got to do it up to the minute because things change up to the minute and I'm very boutique. So, you know, she'll usually send me um, things Friday for what, what we're going to post next week. And I'll make changes, I'll go, I don't like that picture. I'm not feeling that anymore. This just happened and I really wanna talk about it. And then she'll, um, you know, we'll just have a couple of emails. Sometimes, you know, a a big ongoing theme with me is credit. Like, I hate it if like a video is shown and it doesn't say who directed the video or a song is shown and it doesn't say who co-wrote it or, you know, anyone in a video, like I like to credit, but I really like to credit the musicians, you know, the producers, anything. I just feel it's important. Photographers, um, that that stuff's really time consuming where you got to find their handles and their handles are different on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, getting all the tags in. So,
2: um,
4: we do that once a week, like even this morning it's Monday and you know, I slept kind of late and I'm, it's, I'm like looking at it's late in the afternoon I see she hasn't done a post and I'm like, are you feeling okay, you know? She, I sent you an email at eight o'clock this morning, did you see it? Like, I hadn't seen it. And um, so, you know, I checked it and I realized there was a couple of things in the description that I wanted to add and I changed some of her words and then I approved it and she posted it. but. Yeah, that's the team. And then I also am working with someone who targets and promotes certain posts to an audience that will be interested in it. So this sad truth with Facebook, which just gets my goat and it's like, what can I do? It's like you build this following on Facebook, right? But when you post on Facebook, that following doesn't see your post.
0: Yep. Not at all.
4: it's, it's, It's a double dipping economy where you bring your fans to them and then they own the data of your fans. You don't own the data of your fans. And then you have to pay them again to show what you're putting out to your own fans because it's on their platform. And it's really expensive and it really adds up. So, um, and you can tell, especially like on the, on your personal pages, you get more engagement, you know, generally, but they're your personal pages. And then if you have a banned page, there'll be no engagement. And, and I learned certain things just by experimenting. Like if you post a link, forget it, you know, five people will see it. It, you know, their algorithms do not like a link that takes you off of their page. Um, They love pictures and they love videos directly uploaded to their page, you know, Mm
5: -hmm.
4: and they don't like a lot of text and um, they love live, you know, and so you can see the algorithms like respond to what Facebook likes. And what I learned from the person who's doing the targeting and the promoting is that, um, it is a it is a beautiful system in that Facebook wants to show your content to the people who want to see it. That that's what they want. They want to show your content to the people who want to see it. And if they see, oh, this is a match. He's posting this, and these people want to see it. Then then they show it to more people like that. You know. Mm-hmm. What they don't respond to is. I want these people, this cold audience to be into this thing so I can win them over and then those people don't engage with it, then Facebook does not it. it stops showing it, you know, it doesn't want to show it to people who don't engage with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Anyway, um, those are just little things that I've learned. But um, so I have a team for social media, which consists of me and and two other people, and um, you know i mean the the crucial one really is the person who does the posting but i realized that without promoting those posts i'm not really getting bang for buck you know Mm
2: -hmm.
4: and then um i wanted to hire a pr company and i had trouble finding one and they're all very expensive and and, and when this record came out i was just like you know what I'm really proud of this record, and I want to give it. It's like I want to give it a three-month window to get a lot of love, of, you know. And um, I don't know. I just, I just love Mark at Shorefire. He's, he's just been. They've been great. I just. They really, it, it, they really understand. And in fact, you know, they've been trying to get me to do less. Like, I constantly want to make content. I constantly want to make videos. I'm a podcast host and editor and producer. You know, I set up the interviews. I record the interviews. I edit the interviews. I make little one-minute uh, videos to promote the interviews. I do the write-up on the, the page, you know. It's so much work. Every single episode. And, and it, the reason it's a lot of work is because I really care. You know, I really If I didn't care, it wouldn't be so much work, but I really do care. Um, And, you know, I've learned to let, I'm really, I'm really uh, battling and learning to stay away from perfectionism because it really is my enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, to put the podcast out that's good enough where maybe there's a couple of plosives on peas that you leave in and you don't get in there and say, Oh, how can I, you know, get these peas not to pop or, you know, that edit was a little close, you know, I mean, I just let some things just go, you know, now, because if I didn't, I would go crazy. And the truth is it really, really doesn't matter. You know, people, they want authenticity. Um, so yeah, the podcast is time consuming, and I love making videos. And um, I want—I always want to make a video for every song I've recorded. Like eventually, I'll get to every song and make some kind of visual representation of that song. Um, and then I—you know—what I miss is—is is just plain old songwriting. Like sometimes I'll have at the end of the night, I'll go to the piano or pick up a guitar and come up with an idea. And I'm like, when am am I going to have time to like really nurture this idea? And if I do, a lot of other things are going to fall by. So, you know, Surefire has really been telling me, Louise, do less, Mm. you know, just do less, make more time. You don't have to make a new video, you know, you can still like, we can still promote the one that came out two months ago, you know, it's new to everyone else, you know, or, so, th- so that that's my team right now um, and, and then I I also um, founded the Goffin and King Foundation um, almost two years ago and, and and last year last fall it really started to come together as a as a real re- living breathing community and um, I have somebody you know working for that who, I met in in, um, audio engineering school last year. He was uh, one of the students and we hit it off and he's great. And um, at first he wanted to do it just as, to get some credits to help him with his future job, you know, to say that he had some, and and to learn, but he was so good at at doing it. I've, you know, um, and with COVID and everything, I've just pretty much begged him to stay on and, you know, I am to stay on. And, 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 you know, there's been a shifting social media person. It's been a student, you know, doing an internship to get credit, um, doing socials and marketing for the Goffin and King Foundation. Right now I have someone for the summer and then she's going to leave in the fall and it'll turn over. You know, I, I one thing I said when I started at the Goffin and King Foundation is the one job I do not want is to be a fundraiser like that is not a job description I want the only problem is that nobody else is doing that job so there really isn't there aren't funds coming in because there's no one doing that job and I, I you know I don't want to do it so between the podcast and the foundation and I <clears throat> the only thing I do that Potentially earns money is really um, doing master classes, teaching master classes, which is really pleasurable for me. I enjoy sharing my experience in a way that might save people time and help them, and help empower them or see a vision to empower themselves to not feel stuck you know, or not give so much power to things around them to make, to allow them to feel like they're successful, you know, to really like appoint themselves as, I'm an artist.
0: I'm not waiting for
4: you to give me permission to be an artist, you know? I mean, the whole thing, if you really just stop, I mean, this is what I would tell anyone listening. If you just stop right now and picture your life as you would like your life to be, doing the job you want to do and ask yourself, if I had this, what would I be doing with my day? Then do that. Spend your day doing that because we end up spending our day going, I've got to send this into so-and-so and and I'm waiting to hear back from that. And I really want to get this TV show greenlit and I want, you know, Write the damn show. You know, film the first ten minutes of it. Go record the song. You know, just if you're a screenwriter, don't ask permission to you know be a screenwriter. Don't say I'm waiting to get a job as a screenwriter because I want to be a screenwriter. Just be a screenwriter and you know write the, the script and 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 then and then I find that the universe responds accordingly. You know. Because most people are really so busy thinking about themselves and their own insecurity that they're not paying attention. They, they don't think to tell you, oh, you know, you're a screenwriter. Cool. You know, what have you got going? Or, you know, what is, what? you know, you have anything I would have heard of? That's the question that everyone asks. And then you go, nope, sorry. You've never <laughs> heard of me. But you will.
0: And, and we've heard of you. and We actually need to uh, wrap it up. Wrap it up because um, it is that time. So one thing we never mentioned was the name of the album is Two Different Movies. Yeah. And people can find it everywhere on their favorite streaming platform and they should definitely listen. It's a, it's a really good record. because you're here, it's a very good record.
4: Thank you, I, I, I'm very proud of it, thank you.
0: Yes, so hang up for one sec, because Dr. Esteban, what do we say at the end of, at the end of every show? We say
1: Alvarez stay. That's
0: right.
1: We say Adios! Alvita stay. Mm-hmm. Adios. Adios! I've traveled way too far to lose myself. I've been through hell and, and back, I'm back. i battle tainted minds, misconceptions of my kind. Leave them guessing all the time who I am, who I am. tired of keeping quiet. Today I break my silence. Yelling like a siren. It echoes through the sun. A- yola, yola, yola. You lie, you you fire, I never fall. I am a rising tide. I rise against the mall. You lie, you I am a rising tide. Don't let the island branch fall. You lie, you On me, brothers and sisters, on me. Keep our composure. You'll see. Ready like soldiers. Habibi, what they really see is not a format. But let the